I wanted to help special operations people that were locking out of a submarine on a LAR-5 that maybe come across carbon dioxide toxicity or problems with that and ways around it. So, yeah, there you go. I, I, I actually find that interesting. I'd love it if you'd send it to me. You know, I think there's this thing about your PhD journey, and that is that you find yourself at some point saying, how many people in the world are really interested in this topic? But in this case, I can tell you as a fellow diver, I would be interested in it. I'm fascinated in that kind of stuff. This is Preble Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. This is Stephen Phillips. I have the deck and the con for today's podcast. Today, my guest is Commander Joseph Deturi, U.S. Navy retired. We will discuss his career as a Navy diver, special operations officer, and the world of submarine rescue. Most importantly, we will discuss his novel that highlights the undersea world, Secrets in Depth. Commander Joseph Deturi enlisted in the U.S. Navy in 1985. He served as a Navy diver, special operations officer, and engineering duty officer, working in the fields of ship's husbandry, saturation diving, and submarine rescue. Joe completed a BS in computer science at the University of South Carolina and earned a master's in astronautical engineering at the Navy Postgraduate School. Upon graduation from NPS, he was assigned as the officer in charge of Deep Submergence Unit Diving Systems Detachment. Under his command, the unit won the White DS Award for Deep Submergence Excellence and certified the 2,000-foot Atmospheric Diving System, or ADS, for fleet use. Commander Deturi holds a PhD in Biomedical Engineering and focuses on hypobaric and hyperbaric medicine. As if all these credentials were not enough, he was a member of the prestigious Paracommandos SOCOM Parachute Demonstration Team. Joe, welcome to Preble Hall. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you guys having me. I'm looking forward to this. Joe, I really enjoyed this book for many reasons. First, as we got to know one another a little before I read the book, I recognized that we had many things in common. Not only were we both novelists, but retired naval officers, Navy divers, and even a smaller club, PhDs. I've had a little exposure to another small community, the submarine rescue community, but you lived it. Recognizing this would be part of the story of Secrets in Depth, I was therefore enthused from the start. Let me say to you and to the audience, it was a great read. Joe, I cannot help asking more details about your background. First, I've heard of the Black Knights, I've heard of the Leapfrogs, but I'd never heard of the Paracommandos. Please tell me more about this unit and, uh, and about the process to join them. So U.S. SOCOM has a skydiving team. So the leapfrogs are only SEALs. The, um, you know, the, the Golden Knights are only the Army, right? Uh, you know, but everybody has their own team, if you will. But SOCOM decided to have its own team. So basically, it's a registered team for jumping into, uh, into events. And they do a lot of publicity and stuff. And basically, if you're a skydiver, you can become part of the team. And then you have to go through a qualification process to be able to jump into stadiums and all the like. So, you know, it's a demonstration and a demonstration candidate. So yeah, it's a good, good program and fun, right? Yeah, very cool. You're right. I said Black Knights. It's the Golden Knights or the... 
or the jumpers for the army. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about your diving career. Did you start as a salvor? Yeah. So I started as a, uh, as a regular uh, salvor. So the special operations community used to be broken into three pieces. One was diving, one was explosive ordnance disposal, and one was explosive ordnance management. And uh, you could just track into any one of those three. And I tracked into the diving side of the house because I was, I was young and I was, you know, divers were cool. <laughs> so, you know, but yeah, I, I wound up tracking into that and started out at Mobile Diving Salvage Unit 1 and then on USS Salvor. And then, uh, yeah, so kind of, a, kind of a good start for my uh, officer career, if you will. Very cool. How did you find yourself then in submarine rescue? Nah. <laughs> so I was actually slated uh, with an astronautical engineering degree to go to the National Reconnaissance Office and to go be a program manager over there. Um, and I was in D.C. at the NRO for a visit uh, on my uh, uh, house hunting TAD, if you will. And uh, and I got a call from the guy who was in charge of Deep Submergence Unit. He says, hey, uh, his name was Keith. He's an academy grad. And he's now a really influential person in the EDO community. He says, hey, Joe, I want you to come out and relieve me. And I said, oh, now, Keith, I got this payback tour. I got to go to the National Reconnaissance Office. He said, no, Supervisor Salvage and Diving said uh, he wants you here. And, uh, and he went ahead and fixed that for you. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> he's like, no, you're the guy. You're coming. And I'm like, oh, OK, I guess I'm coming. <laughs> so it was that easy. Yeah, it's funny how that happens in people's careers from time to time. Yeah, right place, right time. And that guy was real influential. Uh, Captain Keith Lenhardt is his name and uh, terrific guy, Academy grad. I think he's an 83 or an 82 or something like that. But So let's talk about your PhD journey. Where did you study? What is your PhD in? And what was the dissertation? So great, uh, great question. I um. So I studied at the University of South Florida, and uh, the reason, it, the, this is the most compelling part, the reason why I went and got my PhD is because I was doing ketogenic diet research as I retired, and I was working with an MD that I know, great guy, another Navy captain, Harry Whalen, uh, and working with him on some research on a ketogenic diet and being prophylactic to central nervous system oxygen toxicity. And when I went to submit the paper as the author, one of the women that were in it was like, oh, well, you can't publish because you don't have a PhD. And I said, you know, you don't have a doctorate, you're not an MD or a PhD. And I said, what, like it's hard? And she was like, oh yeah, this is super duper hard. Really, it's a hard thing to do. And I was like, I right, hold my beer because now I actually, <laughs> now I have to go get one, right? right? And I got a PhD in biomedical engineering because I was really trying to do research to fix the whole traumatic brain injury thing. Um, so, so that was kind of my push, but I found myself tracking along carbon dioxide and its toxicity level for divers. And it just happened to be a very easy fit for me. So my dissertation was in uh, predictive measures for carbon dioxide uh, or hypercapnia. And, uh, and a predictive algorithm, which I, which I wound up uh, finding and patenting. So that was kind of a cool thing, you know. So, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a, I wanted to help special operations people that were locking out of a submarine on a LAR-5 that maybe come across carbon dioxide toxicity or problems with that and ways around it. So, yeah, there you go. I, I, I actually find that interesting. I'd love it if you'd send it to me. 
You know, I think there's this thing about your PhD journey, and that is that you find yourself at some point saying, how many people in the world are really interested in this topic? But in this case, I can tell you as a fellow diver, I would be interested in it. I'm fascinated in that kind of stuff. And I was fascinated in all that when I was working on submarine rescue. Uh, one of the things that I did was I went back with um, one of my teammates and we went through all the tables and the premises. You know, if the submarine is at this depth and you have this many rescuees, and it takes this long to transit to the surface and get them in the chamber and the associated pressure is this, what is that? And we went through and worked all of that. And that it's a fascinating problem to go through. So. Oh yeah. No, I, uh, the, the funny part is, yeah. So it would have practical ap applicability to the submarine rescue element as well. Plus living on submarines, you know, you have that amine, the fluid that, that uh, scrubs out carbon dioxide and then, you know, divers and, you know, and space and astronauts. And so there are many places where carbon dioxide builds up and carbon dioxide is a very nasty gas. It really is. So, right. Yeah, indeed. This might be a pun, but when I dove into the world of submarine rescue, I delved into its history. I read about the early developments uh, by the U.S. Naval Academy class of 1914 member Vice Admiral Charles Bowers Swede Momsen, such as the Momsen Lung and the early versions of what became the McCann Submarine Rescue Chamber. And I remember they had at least two of them out there in front of uh, the Undersea Rescue Command at, out at uh, Coronado Island when I visited. I read The Terrible Hours by Peter Moss about the rescue of the Squalus, which Momsen led. And naturally, I looked into the more recent case of the Rus Russian Oscar II class submarine Kursk. Are there any rescues that you have studied or that you think are hallmarks in the history of submarine rescue? Sure. So the uh, the salvage of the Kursk uh, was one that I was intimately involved with the people who did it. I didn't actually do it because I was that was before my time, but our unit actually responded to that, and my predecessor did as well. And uh, and basically, I read up on that and I learned about it from the people who actually did the cutting and did the actual salvage. It was really great. But the one thing that I kind of came through on all of these rescues, every single one that I studied was the rescuable waters are very, very small. There's a small percentage of right. the ocean that is rescuable. The rest, man, you people that go on submarines for a living, boy, you are made of brass, I'll tell you. So They're, they're brave individuals, and it's the reason that they get submarine pay, I'm sure. Yep. All right. I'm going to, again, use a diver pun to set the stage. Uh, let's please give the audience then an overview of submarine rescue today, the process to respond to a downed submarine or dis-sub, and the equipment that is used by the U.S. Navy to rescue submariners. Right. No, uh, great, great puns, man. <laughs> it's like dad jokes for days. It's terrific. So the, uh, the, the submarine rescue as we see it now is with, I believe they call it submarine rescue unit instead of deep submergence unit now. And, uh, and what they have is they have the pressurized rescue module, which we brought into existence, $100 million asset that uh, there's one of in the United States, and that's it. So it's basically a flying remotely operated vehicle, but you can have people inside of it. And, and that works really well. Now, there are two sides of it. One is intervention, 
And that was what the atmospheric diving suit was used for, was the intervention portion. That is, oh, the deck of the submarine is cluttered with a whole bunch of stuff. There's a bunch of cargo nets and metal stuff. And, and the intervention asset went down there to clear it. And then the rescue asset was the one, the pressurized rescue module. So with that combination of ADS suit, as well as the pressurized rescue module, you can affect rescue 72 hours time to first rescue anywhere in the world. So when you were stationed there, I effectively didn't drink for three years because you were on call straight and you had to be somewhere within 72 hours. So if you were hammered somewhere, it just wasn't ever going to work, you know? So my team was really on call and on, uh, on point for three straight years. So I was fortunate for that, but the bottom line is uh, the atmospheric diving suit has now been replaced with a remotely operated vehicle. So they've gone back and forth with this. And it is my personal feeling that you need the man in the suit. You need the eyes on the bottom. You need to basically be able to go do something specific. And, you know, everybody says what separates us from the, uh, from, you know, the, the other creatures is our opposable thumb. That's actually not true. What separates us from the other creatures is our ability to what's called prehense. And prehensing is going from one finger to the next to the next with the opposing thumb. Because if, if that were the case, if it was just the opposing thumb, then lobsters would run around and rule the earth. And we, the lobsters do not rule the earth as far as I know, right? So, but the, uh, the, the prehension or the ability to go between those fingers and be able to grasp things, that is. And, and in the one atmosphere suit, you had the man there and without the one atmosphere suit in a, in a portable remotely operated vehicle or something like that, it's just, you don't get the dexterity. You don't get the eyes on scene. Doesn't matter how many cameras you have down there. You're not going to know the story unless you're actually there. That's my opinion. You know, I think I share that opinion. Um, I, I've never been in an ADS myself, but as I said, I've worked in the submarine rescue realm. Uh, for a brief time. And my imagination is there's something about having a sailor on your deck that's tapping on the hall saying, we're here. You know, you might hear an ROV show up, but I just imagine that when you hear somebody in an ADS suit and they're tapping and they hear the tap back and you respond, then there's a notion of somebody's coming to get us. That's actually, it's, it's very, very true because we did a lot of international submarine rescue and, you know, our subs don't bottom, but other subs do. And, you know, some of the foreign military sub captains were like, I heard the man outside, bank, 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 you know, and, and you could hear it because literally that's exactly what we do is we hit on it with a hammer and it's like, hey, how you doing? We're here. Are you there? They're like, yeah, we're here. Okay. So you're right. It's it's crew morale because remember you're underwater and you're a couple hundred feet deep or a thousand feet deep. Whoa, that's that's rather daunting, you know. Indeed, the atmospheric diving suit then is prominent in your novel. Can you share with us a little bit more about how it works and its capabilities? Right. So the atmospheric diving suit was initially uh, designed the one that we're working with by a guy named Phil Newton. Uh, it was called the Newt suit. It was called the deep worker. It was called many different things. That company has now changed hands, but Phil Newton was the father behind it. And it works on something called the equivalence principle, which is in my mind as an engineer, it was epic, right? And it's the amount of force that is applied externally so when you get down to 2000 feet which is the limit of the atmospheric diving suit you can go to 2000 feet 
the equivalent pressure is 810 pounds per square inch. So that 810 pounds per square inch that is trying to put you in compression transfers through the joint and that joint has a hole that goes back and pushes back and it then pushes out at 810 pounds per square inch. And I was like, how brilliant is this guy? I mean, Dr. Phil Newton, just absolutely brilliant on subsea engineer. And he, he basically went through this and made this principle work. So on rotating joints, you can effectively be the Michelin man and move with very little resistance at that depth because it's a hard, 810 pounds per square inch is a lot of, lot of pressure on your body, a lot of pressure on the external joints and would seize up and, and foul any joint at, at almost any depth. It's, so it's a great principle and uh, a great work. Lots of lights. Lots of cameras, uh, real, real capable suit, but uh, it's fifteen hundred pounds. Everybody thinks it's very light, but it weighs about five pounds positive in the water. Okay, <laughs> wow. The sealed delivery vehicle and the dry deck shelter are also prominent in your novel. Uh, can you describe these capabilities for the audience and how, how you incorporated them into the book? Yeah, so uh, I obviously made a stretch here because I never, in my command tour, I never actually worked with the sealed delivery vehicle, but I knew a lot about it because my previous tour and subsequent tours were working in dry combat submersible and, uh, and working with the sealed delivery vehicle. So um, basically, I weaved it in as a delivery, as a surreptitious delivery method. Right. And and the the SDV is kind of like the pickup truck of the ocean. Right. It, it, it can basically take you somewhere, but it's limited because the divers are wet and they're going to be in decompression mode. Right. Except the one atmosphere dive suit is not. So basically, we got a ride in our garage, which was the, uh, you know, the uh, the um, subsea, uh, the, the subsea um, uh, dry deck shelter. And then we took our pickup truck out and delivered us to the side of the ledge. And then the one atmosphere suit made the deep plunge to almost 2000 feet, did what it had to do, and then came back and then they picked me up. <laughs> I enjoyed reading all of that. I said to myself, this is a, a fascinating approach. I suspected what you said, that this was in part where the novel was getting into the realm of fiction. But to me, that's what makes it a great book, right, is because I sat back and I said to myself, this they could probably do this if they had to for this important mission. For me, the book was reminiscent of Jack Carr's terminal list. Yeah. I'm interested in your view as the author, though. How do you describe the plot of Secrets in Depth to others when you're when you're telling them about the book? So it it rivals my career. So after 28 years in the Navy. I was at SOCOM and I was asked to do something that was against my tenants of life. And uh, it, it was basically, um, I'm not gonna name names or talk about anything like that, but the bottom line is I was asked to do something that was against our core values. I do not lie, cheat, steal, or tolerate those who do. And I was asked to do that by somebody in the upper up and I said, you got the wrong guy. I don't know whether this is a test or not, but I am not going to do that. And then it was like, oh, well, you know, uh, yeah, this is just the way that it is. Now you got to, 
you know, almost like Jack Ryan, you got a chip at the table. Now you're going to be in the big game. Now you got, you know, and I'm like, yeah, it's just not my jam, baby. So, and, and it was, uh, the, the Navy was basically turning left and I was turning right. And I said, I don't think this is going that way. And I dropped my papers and they're like, wait, you can't retire. And I'm like, oh, oh yeah, actually I have 28 years in. And they were like, oh, you were enlisted first. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> for 10 years, dude. Yeah. They thought I only had 18 years in. They were like, right. oh, we got you. We're going we're gonna to put the screws to you here. And, you know, and plus you're going up for captain and, and we'll hold that over your head. And I was like, no, thanks. I'm good. <laughs> it sounds like it was the right decision. Uh, for me, it was very, it was a very right decision. So, yeah. As a fellow author, I'm always interested in the process. What is your writing process and how did you develop the story? So uh, this story has developed for the better part of 20 years. So when I was in charge at Deep Submergence Unit, I was basically jotting stuff down. And, and when we say, when we say Dartos, you know, Dr. Dartos, Dr. James Dartos, that, that guy actually did exist. He was my MD who actually was a SEAL first and then came back. So, so that cat and I used to have like these disgruntled, like, oh, we hate our boss sort of a thing. We hated the Commodore, you know? So, so that, that rivalry that was explained was definitely it. But that process started on long boat trips to and from the whatever it was that we were doing. And I would just be jotting notes. And then during COVID, Frankly, I was bored and I was like, okay, what am I doing? Because this is just lame. You can only drink so much, <laughs> you know, there's just, there's a limit to what you can do. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to finish that book. And then sure enough, man, I pulled it out and I was like, all right, this is good. So yeah, lots of jotting and lots of notes along the way. And then 2020 hit and it was like, okay, now it's time to finish this thing. And, you know, hired smart people to help me and, Thank God for editors, because I, I are an engineer, right? It's like, yeah. <laughs> I, she's like, do you even know how to spell? I'm like, nope, not even a little. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. My process was very similar. My first book I was writing first and it was that it was a lot of notes and then notes became paragraphs and it, it actually got set aside. And my second novel that I wrote that became the first one that I published, Proximity, a lot of it was written on the train going from my home to Washington, D.C. On, on commuting in the morning. But then I was recalled to active duty and was sent to Suda Bay Crete for a year. And so I had time in the evenings and it was one of these where I'm going to be here for a year. And I spent a lot of time in the evenings and that's when notes became a book and I finished it when I was there. Sometimes we need one of those breaks in life, you know, or breaks from life to be able to finish something. So I'm interested what authors or books have influenced your own writing. Oh, Clancy. Clancy was uh, when I was on deployments anywhere, I'd grab any Clancy or Dirk Pitt novel. <laughs> I love both of them. Clancy and Cussler both. Yep. My, uh, I have a novel that has been in the works for a while that it's very much a Clive Cussler style novel. Oh, yeah. So anything that you include diving, it's interesting that you say that when I was reading your book, I, like I said, I was, I was sensing Jack Carr, but now that you say that it's also got a Clive Cussler thing to it. And I dig that. 
Yeah. Right. It's the the unsung hero that really didn't want to be a hero. I mean, the, the character in the book really didn't want to be anything but serve the country. Right. And that's it. But his idea of serving the best interests of the country are are uh, <laughs> diametrically opposed from the, uh, you know, from the leadership, if you will. And then also just the classic diving stuff. I mean, I think all Clive Cussler books have got some fantastic diving in them. Yeah. No, it's all good. Joe, you alluded to this a little bit earlier, but I want to delve into it a little bit more. Uh, there's a section of the book where the SDV is employed to transport a diver in the ADS, the atmospheric diving suit, to his project in order to perform his mission and then retrieve the diver in the ADS and return him to the supporting submarine. Was this scheme fact or fiction? Yeah. So uh, this, this concept of operations literally existed in my head. And, uh, and I'll tell you just a little known fact, the only time that our SDV has ever been deployed in anger for a real mission was in an uncharacteristic, non-traditional methodology off the back of a Mark V boat, for crying out loud. So you think to yourself, we have to have ways of deploying our stuff that is totally non-traditional. So when I was in the dry combat submersible program office, I was starting to think of this sort of methodology, knowing a lot about the one atmosphere suit, knowing that there were these kind of missions. So the answer is it's, it's factional, but uh, it never truly happened. Just uh, exists in the anal analog of my mind, if you will. <laughs> right on. Well, for me, it made the book very enjoyable. All of the sections that you had on the ADS, I found fascinating. Joe, other than writing, what else are you doing in your post-Navy career? Interesting question. So I did get the PhD in biomedical engineering to go ahead and try and help the traumatic brain injury problem. So that's basically what I'm doing. And I had been doing it with hyperbaric medicine for a period of time, for about five years or so. And then interestingly enough, uh, last year, September 7th of last year, I was struck, uh, in my, I have a 1947 Chevy, uh, coincidence that it's 1,947, the exact depth that I dove to, <laughs> not. Uh, so my 1947 Chevy got T-boned and uh, I have a traumatic brain injury. So I'm knocked out in the car, uh, prefrontal cortex injury. Oh my gosh. Hemorrhagic stroke. It was horrible, right? So now I'm on my way to the hospital with a traumatic brain injury. And I'm like, okay, I know how to heal this. It's okay. I, I can do this. Right. So I go in there. I'm in the ICU for a bunch of days. And then five days, uh, six days after that, I'm out. So a week or so in the hospital. Uh, and I'm trying to fix myself using hyperbaric medicine. And it wasn't, it wasn't working. Right. So I had to stumble on other other things in concert to work that. And now from that, I have developed a eight hour intensive outpatient protocol that lasts for 28 straight days that teaches you the habits for dealing with traumatic brain injury that heals you from traumatic brain injury that increases the coherence and decreases the phase lag. I mean, there's sort of all kinds of science behind it. So that's really my true love of what I'm doing right now. It's like I'm putting kids back together who were right. So Joe, that sounds like a blessing and a curse. I'm sorry that you had an accident, but what I appreciate is it sounds like the scientist and the healer in you is embracing it and, and really using that. So gosh, that's admirable. Yeah. It's uh thank you. I really appreciate that, but it was the, it seemed like the right thing to do, you know? So 
Well, and what about your writing? Is there going to be another book? Will there be a sequel to Secrets in Depth? So interestingly enough, uh, the next book that I started writing was why my traumatic brain injury was the best thing that ever happened to me. So, and what that does is it takes you on a narrative medicine journey of healing traumatic brain injury. And so that everybody knows here are the signs and symptoms of the traumatic brain injury. If somebody's acting this way, be concerned about that. And then also what I wanted to do was point out to people that this process of peer review and publication and getting it approved and insurance and all that BS is so hard. And when I started navigating it as a, as a retired Navy commander with 28 years, who was like a doer who could get the job done and kick down the door. And I was guffawed with, you think you got politics inside of the Navy? Ha ha, get in line, brother. Medicine, medicine's got the market cornered on that crap. So it's kind of a kind of an interesting thing. So at least that the book is going to give people the uh, the feeling of why we're not solving traumatic brain injury and why we're not solving most of the other problems we're solving. So, but yes, there will be a follow-on book. Uh, Commander Joe Camissa transfers out of there, goes to U.S. SOCOM, and starts building dry combat submersible. And oh boy, does he get in trouble! <laughs> wow. Well, I look forward to reading it then. I look Thank forward you. to reading both of those, both your next novel and your medical work. What about connecting with you? I think people may want to connect with you on both fronts. How can people find and follow you? Oh, thank you. So the site that I'm doing the traumatic brain injury stuff is hbotampa.com. That's hyperbaric oxygen, tampa.com, hbotampa.com. My personal website is drdeepc.com, D-R-D-E-E-P-S-E-A.com. And that's my handle on most social medias or just look up Joe Dottori or just Google me. You'll find something. There's all kinds of, I, I had a girl who did that for a while and she was really exceptional at it. Thank God. Great. <laughs> I will put links to both of those in the show notes so that folks can find you easily. I'll also put a link to the book Secrets in Depth on Amazon and the like. I'm also going to put in a link to the Peter Moss book that I mentioned, The Terrible Hours. Joe, thank you for joining me today on Preble Hall to discuss submarine rescue, your writing, your career, especially your novel Secrets in Depth. I really enjoyed the book. I think the Preble Hall audience listeners will enjoy it. And all of us will look forward to your next work. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the time and the, uh, the provocative questioning. So keep up the good work, guys. Right on. And hoo-yah. Hoo-yah, DC. <laughs> Preble Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.